Hello and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. This was such a fun interview. Olivia Petter is a podcasting phenomenon and the author of Millennial Love, a kind of modern anthropological anthology of what dating and relationships are like now. From apps to ghosting and how social media can affect both the beginning and end of relationships, to how the Me Too movement changed ordinary women's lives, there was so much that we covered. I loved her book and I love talking to her about it and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Olivia, welcome to the Sunday Salon. It's so exciting to have you on. I'm thrilled to be speaking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of the podcast. It's lovely to be here. And when I say here, I mean in my office. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's start with the book Millennial Love. How would you describe it? Sort of if you had to do one of those awful elevator pitch type things. So I would say it's all about kind of dismantling the complexities of the modern dating landscape and encompassing the silly to the serious it looks at everything from read receipt anxiety to me too and how that's changed the way that we date and our attitude towards consent I'd say it's a combination of memoir social commentary and interviews with previous guests who have come on my podcast uh, which is also called millennial love how was that for my elevator pitch? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And and I'm glad you mentioned the podcast, actually, because I just wanted to ask you about that. That was sort of the precursor to the book. And I'm a big fan of that. And you started that as part of your job at The Independent. And it's become its own kind of phenomenon in and of its right, which The Independent must be very grateful for. But can you just tell me where that came from, the idea and, and so on? Yeah, you know what, it's funny because I wish there was a better story to it. But in terms of where it came from, it was just my editor turning around to me and my old colleague, Rachel, and saying, do you guys want to start a podcast about relationships? And that was that was kind of it. And the brief was basically just find something interesting to say about the way people date now each week. And, you know, my colleague Rachel and I were both single at the time. So it kind of started off as us talking about our own dating lives and using what was happening in the news as a springboard for conversation with guests who we would have on every week. But, you know, we wouldn't always get a guest every week, so we would often end up just just going into the studio each week and kind of talking about dates we'd been on <laughs> the previous evenings and, and sort of analysing them and what they meant, which must have been very strange for the people we were dating. <laughs> And and how have people that you're dating reacted? Because one of the really interesting elements of the book is you sort of, there are times that you go, you know, at the time I recorded that episode or at the time I did that interview, I was also dating so-and-so, so-and-so. I mean, that must be, it's the sort of dating columnist thing. What what problems has that created? And Or have you had any strange reactions? Yeah, it's funny. I always thought that, the people I dated wouldn't want to be spoken about on the show. And I think this is something that Dolly Alderton has spoken about as well when she used to do her column for Sunday Time Style. Men actually always want to be written about or spoken about. <laughs> and I would go on dates with with these guys and, you know, I would tell them about the podcast and they'd be like, well, when, when are you going to mention me? Why haven't you mentioned me yet? <laughs> so that kind of took me by surprise. But it has, it has got me into trouble a few times. There was one evening when I went on a date with a guy who I used to go to university with and we used to kind of see each other at uni a little bit. 
And we went on a date and the following day I went on the podcast and basically explained how we'd gone to the theatre and I thought that was a good thing because it meant I wouldn't have to talk to him much because I wasn't really that interested. And then at the end of the day, I kind of just ran away. I then found out a few months later that he actually listened to that episode of the show <laughs> and uh, had gone around telling all of these <laughs> people at university, God, that Olivia Petter, she's such a dick. <laughs> I can't believe she did that. <laughs> and then I realized, oh God, people listen to when I talk about them unfavorably. I just never imagined he would listen to it. So yeah, that was bad. And then when I entered into a relationship, I stopped talking about my own life on the show and and now the podcast is very different you know it, it's mainly interview focused so I don't tend to talk about myself very much unless it's relevant to what we're talking about on the show and if I do I'm quite careful to only talk about things that have happened in the past and you know I won't come on and be like so I had this argument with my boyfriend last night because <laughs> it's just I don't think it's really very respectful but also you know, it's the same with when you're writing about relationships. I don't think you can talk about anything coherently and, you know, eloquently until some time has passed. So I tend now not to open up about things from my own life unless it's, you know, a few years or so in the past. And can I ask, and this is perhaps a boring question for the people who don't necessarily do kind of journalism or recording or anything but are there legal ramifications for you just talking about presume do you have to keep elements of dates anonymous and sort of change details when you're talking about them because if you're talking about someone on the podcast and you're portraying them as a to use a you know a term you examine in the book it's sort of portraying them as a total fuckboy they I suppose they might be able to claim that there was sort of reputational damage or something like that yeah, that's very true. And they would, um, they probably would be able to. So I think it's the same with, with journalism. You know, if you are going to talk about someone in a way that could be defamatory, um, you obviously need to be very careful about concealing their identity. But I tend, I tend not to do that. You know, the things, whenever I spoke negatively about people I dated on the show, it was more, it was more just, you know, oh, I found this person boring, or I didn't fancy them that much. It wasn't, it wasn't anything that would have kind of defamed their character, I don't think. And, you know, I've never I've never accused anyone of sexual assault or anything like that on the podcast. And, and when, I've, when I've done that in writing, you know, obviously all of the legal uh, things apply and, you know, you can seal the identity and that kind of thing. But, yeah, it's um, it's just a funny one, isn't it? I think it's more of a it's more of a moral issue, <laughs> but it's, it's very difficult to, to date and talk about it at the same time when you're doing it, you know, like. I'm pleased I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, and it's sort of, there are parallels for subjects you look at, such as Love Island and, and the kind of couple goals phenomenon. But I'm sure we'll get to those. Before we do, I, I just want to ask you, I mentioned fuckboys just now. I want to ask you about the tropes you examine in the book, the cool girl archetype and, and the fuckboy archetype. Um, one of the things I, I found most interesting was when you recognised yourself sort of, conforming or trying to conform to the the cool girl dating archetype and 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 likewise when Jordan Stevens from Rizzle Kicks was sort of but basically said all hands up I used to be a bit of a fuckboy can you tell me a little bit about those two phenomena and and I suppose recognizing it in your own life and 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 how we've all done it and sort of sometimes reputate sort of regret it Mm. they're really fascinating I think for a number of reasons but I guess you know, the main place where I think they come from is from the tr- uh, the traditional gender 
roles and the dynamics between men and women, which is why I think they tend to most prolifically apply to straight relationships. Obviously, you know, you can have people conforming to those tropes in in all sorts of relationships. But I think something about the dynamic between men and women playing up to these traditional gender roles makes women feel like they need to conform to this certain code of behaviors that will make them seem desirable to men and I think that does come from sexism similarly I think the fuckboy narrative comes from this level of dominance and you know the way that Jordan explains it is you know he says that you know men are typically physically more dominant than women which I think is an interesting interesting explanation about where it comes from but I think it's just this whole idea of supremacy And I think that's what underlies both of these tropes, really. But in terms of the cool girl and how it applied to me, I think it's something most women, most straight women in particular, feel like they have to conform to. Um, And what's interesting about what Florence Given said in um, a podcast episode we did, and she, she dates women as well as men. And she said, you know, she feels more comfortable sometimes on a date with a woman because she doesn't have to conform to that gender role and she doesn't have to play that part of the cool girl and she doesn't have to pretend that she doesn't care about things that she would care about and she doesn't have to pretend to be all insouciant and all kind of like mysterious and ambiguous which is the kind of way that women are conditioned to behave in order to be desirable and I think a really good example of that that I refer to in the book is in How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days that um, Mm. Kate Hudson character when you know, she kind of does the antithesis. She's kind of the natural cool girl. You know, she drinks beer. She she eats ribs and stays really thin. It's kind of all of these horrible kind of like things that women feel like they have to do in order to impress a man. And then she reverses that in order to repel the man that she's dating. And it works. And it's the perfect kind of cool girl narrative because you see, you see it in both ways. And it really, it really shames women for caring about the men that they're with and for actually being, you know, quite rightly anxious when they're dating someone and for, you know, doting on them. And she, you know, she takes it to an extreme degree, but I think there's a real truth in that, that, you know, it, it's it's okay for women to care about the people that they're dating and it's okay for them to want to be nice to them and, and bring them plants and do nice things for them, you know, and talk to them on the phone. So it's it's a really interesting thing. I just remember watching that film and thinking, right, okay, so this is what I must not do if I want yes. them to like me. Yes, yes. No, I can remember thinking the same. And what's interesting is that film is, of course, before the, the era of online dating. And a lot of, not all, but a lot of what the book looks at and a lot of the sort of millennial experience of love has been conditioned by our hyper-connected world, both, both when it comes to sort of into the internet and online dating but also just having a phone in your hand at all times mm. I mean one thing you say is, is there's a statistic you cite um, early on that by 2031 I think it's is it more than 50 percent mm. of dating uh, relationships will have begun online and in amidst that changing landscape you kind of you, you look at all these different elements from as you say sliding into dms and read receipts to things like social media stalking and and the sort of gamification that that dating apps introduce and um i wonder if we could just kind of talk about a few of a few of those let's start with a sliding into dms which i've got a vested interest in actually because it's sort of how my 
boyfriend and I met. And, <laughs> as you say, sliding is a you, you you object to the term sliding for good reason. Tell me about that. So I think the whole term of sliding into DMs, it kind of paints this picture of it's a really subtle way of flirting with someone, kind of making a move on them. And in actual fact, the act of sliding into someone's DMs could not be more brazen. It could not be more obvious. And in some ways, it could not be more intrusive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if you're the thing, the point is, and this is the thing I talk about in that chapter, if you're sliding into someone's DMs because you fancy them, you probably don't have their phone number. Otherwise, you would just text them, wouldn't you? So already mm-hmm. you're kind of you're kind of broaching someone, encroaching on someone's boundaries because they haven't, you know, they haven't given you your phone number. They haven't consented in a way to having contact with you. So you're already kind of taking a risk by by sliding into their DMs and by by contacting them that way. And I just think, you know, the whole term sliding into DMs, it has this very, it perpetuates this idea of, well, you just want to sleep with them. You know, it's not, it it, it it because of because it's so brazen it doesn't necessarily seem like someone's doing that because they want a relationship although that does happen and you know I know that's what happened in your case and that happens in lots of people's cases and there are some case studies in the book where that's happened but I think the general consensus about what sliding into dms is and the intention of it and I say this in the book, you know, you don't slide into someone's DMs because you want to have lunch with them. You slide into someone's DMs because you probably just want to fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's funny. You recreate the whole transcript from the James Franco gate where he was mm. sort of, his sliding into DMs technique was criticised. And it really does actually <laughs> highlight the sort of very brazen and direct nature of it. I, I mean, Obviously, it's one of many forms of, of digital communication that we use now, and, and things like WhatsApp and, and just and texting as well would be another. And um, the game has somewhat changed with the advent of read receipts, and that can it was you know I mean talk about the cool girl uh, archetype. Nothing can dismantle it more than agonising over read receipts and mm. bombarding the other person with with messages when you're get, not getting a, a response. I mean, how do you think? that stuff has changed I suppose if we didn't have them what would we be doing differently would it be that our our lack of you know our feelings would be masked because there would be no record of a phone call I suppose and and what do you think has the the impact of that has been what I mean how does it contribute towards a sort of more anxious dating scene Well, look, I think we're always going to have a certain degree of anxiety when we're in those initial stages of dating someone because we're not sure if they feel the same way about us as we feel about them. And, you know, there's a certain element of that that is exciting. And, you know, if you don't feel nervous about someone who you're dating, it's probably a bad sign, right? But I think the issue with read receipts is that it exacerbates all of that existing anxiety and multiplies it by 100. You know, I think we would be so much calmer if we did not have read receipts. I genuinely do not understand why it's necessary for us to be able to see when someone has read our message and chosen not to reply to it or when someone has read our message and is online but is also not replying to you they're replying to someone else and you can see them doing that or when you're on whatsapp and you can see someone typing a reply to you or on you know instagram or whatever they all have these options now you can see someone is typing a message to you and then and then no message appears and then they stop typing and then they and then suddenly they're no longer online you know naturally if you're watching that 
that that happen you're going to think well why why did they stop replying why why did they go off what's happened are they talking to other women are they talking to other people and your mind just races naturally because it how could it not you know we have access to all of this information that we simply don't need we don't need to know any of that stuff and i know you can turn those options off and i have turned most of them off but you can always see when someone is online um, on on a smartphone app most of the time. And that in itself can be really terrifying. You know, I write in the book how sometimes you're talking to someone and then you suddenly see that they're online or that they start replying to you. And it just overwhelms you with, with nerves. And, you know, I drop the phone in the loo, I've dropped it on my face, all sorts of things. I just think it's just not necessary. And it, we just we just all be a lot happier <laughs> with ourselves and probably less insecure if it wasn't for read receipts and you know ultimately the reason why they've been invented by messaging apps is because they're smart and they want to make their platforms addictive so the idea is that you know you can see that your message has been delivered and then you return to the app to see if it's been read and then you return to the app to see if that person's online it keeps you on the app so it makes sense from their perspective, but from a human level, it does not make any sense. And it's a really toxic thing for our brains. Well, similar to that is social media stalking, because of course, if they don't reply to your message, you can then track them on every platform to see what they are doing mm-hmm. and who they're with. And everyone's social media stalks, I think it's fair to say. I mean, we should, it's embarrassing, but we do all do it. And you identify some benefits to it when it comes to things like finding common ground on an early date. But tell me a a little bit about the negatives, which in many ways can outweigh those those positives. Well, I think you can fall down a rabbit hole, can't you? Because again, it's only natural to want to find out stuff about someone when you're attracted to them. It's just that, you know, the normal way to find out about that person is by asking them questions or spending time with them and now you have all of this additional information so if you meet someone on a dating app and you ha- you don't even need their last name you know if you're if you're good at social media stalking which a lot of people I spoke to for the book are myself included you know you just need to know the right platforms and the right search tools then you can find their last name you can find their LinkedIn page you can find out what they got in their A levels you can find out where they volunteered on their gap year you can find out what their sister does for a living you can find out what their sister's boyfriend has for breakfast you like it's just it's so odd And the problem is you then go into these dates armed with all of this kind of superficial information about someone and it can really characterize your your perception of that person before you've even met them. And I think the problem with that is very often you can then build up this kind of fantasized version of who that person is in your head and then you go on the date and the person ends up really disappointing you because they don't live up to that or, you know, they... it's just it just creates an awkward kind of start I think to a date when you find out all of these things in a very inauthentic way when the magic of dating and the magic of romance and intimacy is is authenticity and organic conversation and information sharing you know it's just I think the whole thing about all of this online stuff and dating apps that I talk about in the book is it strips the whole dating experience of so much of what makes it for lack of a better word, magical. Do you know what I mean? Just and like and natural. And then, of course, there's there's the post relationship stalking, which is perhaps the more even more toxic. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> that's the worst. Yeah, because then what happens is, you know, I I talk about what happened with me. I went through a breakup last summer, 
And, you know, I thought the healthy thing to do would be to block my ex on all forms of social media because I just thought I don't want to see what he's up to. I don't want to see who he's dating. I don't want to see what his friends are doing, whatever. So I blocked him on everything. But then obviously you, you still have the natural curiosity because you know that he's out there posting on Instagram and you want to see what he's posting. So then what I ended up doing was Google searching his name and then finding his Instagram on that so I could still look at it without having to log in. And then I was using my work account to watch his stories. And it just, it makes me sound like a mad person. But I know that so many people do this and they just are too embarrassed to talk about it, which makes it worse because then you know, I would do all of these things and then feel so humiliated about it because I was like, why am I doing this? Like, but but I know that it's natural because this is what these platforms are designed to do. And, you know, you can get so caught up in it because then it's not just the ex you're stalking. Then you might find out who they're dating now. So then you stalk their current girlfriend and then you go down this horrible rabbit hole again of comparing yourself to them and, oh, what's what do, what do they have that I don't have? And it just it just taps into all of these pre-existing anxieties and just makes them so much worse. And then yeah. obviously it makes it much harder to get over someone because well, yes. you're always there. That's exactly what I was going to say. You're just not moving on. I mean, mm. you're, how do you start a new relationship when you're still spending all your time social media stalking a, a, a previous one? Exactly. Well, this is the thing. You, I think a lot of the time now it's so much, you have to have real inner strength and self-belief to cut yourself off from that and just be happy single. I think what tends to happen with a lot of people is that the only way that they get themselves out of that is they start falling for someone else. And, you know, that obsession becomes replaced with something else. Yes, yeah, yeah, the rebound relationship, Mm -hmm. um, which I have to say is something that that was always my technique. (laughs) I I was like a serial dater. But the, um, of course... The most obvious way in which the internet has impacted um, dating is, is is dating apps. And one thing that I was really interested in um, was, I think it was Raven Smith spoke about how it was almost like a computer game. You know, mm. you were it was just, it's about trying to get that date. And when you're playing a computer game, you might kind of die on a level and then restart the game. It's the same with, with dating, you know, a, a dm may go nowhere or whatever uh, but then you've got your other chance and the downside of that is that it can be very dehumanizing and some of the sort of practices and um you know for want of a better word trends that have emerged are really quite brutal things like ghosting is ghosting is probably the most famous one can we just talk about how the thing, you know, you, you've actually done some of these yourself. You've, you've been the victim of them, but you've done some of them as well, which is not something that you're, you're proud of. It's admirable that you're honest about it. Um, can, you, can we just talk about the sort of psychology of how online dating makes those easier to do and, and why, why we resort to them in, in kind of times of sort of panic? Yeah, I think I think unfortunately, you know, like like how you said, dating apps do dehumanize the dating experience. And the thing is, when you're using an app, you are swiping through so many users at a time and you're not treating them as people. You're kind of treating them as users, like Raven Smith said, you know, you're just looking at their photo. Yes, no. Yes, no. And 
what ends up happening is you kind of subconsciously, I think, start to view the people who you meet on apps as disposable because there are so many and it's sort of like fast fashion, which again is kind of what Raven alludes to in the show. And the problem with that is then you don't end up treating people well because you just have so many and you know that if one person doesn't meet your needs, you can just immediately be talking to someone else. And, you know, I, I have I have done this myself and it's awful, but but now I understand why I, I did. And I guess, you know, the thing for me was I was on a date with someone who I met on an app and we had had great conversations and we'd been getting on really well and it, we really seemed to click when we were chatting you know, on the app and on WhatsApp. But then when we met in real life, there was just no spark. And, you know, you know, pretty quickly, I think, if you don't fancy someone. And so then I I managed to actually bump into a friend in the same bar that I was at. And so I came back and I just said to the guy after an hour, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I just bumped into my friend and, you know, he's just gone through a really bad breakup. Um, So I'm just going to, I'm going to have to leave. I'm so, so sorry. And, you know, that was a complete lie. My friend was upstairs having drinks with some other friends and I just wanted to go and join them because I thought my date was boring. And and so I did that. And I realized now that was quite cruel. And, you know, the poor guy must have must have been a bit confused <laughs> and probably knew I was lying as well. Um. And I know that if someone did that to me, I'd be quite hurt. But I think, unfortunately, this this is just a natural byproduct of the way dating apps have kind of conditioned us to behave and treat other people, which is not as much respect, I think, as you would if you had met that person through a mutual friend, perhaps, or at work or at a party where there's more at stake socially, I think. Whereas when you meet these people on dating apps you have no connections to, no obligations towards at all, you kind of feel like you can just treat them however you want. And that is why we have all of these horrible trends, like you mentioned, like ghosting, breadcrumbing, benching, cushioning. I mean, the fact that they have names is also a problem because I think that ends up validating that behavior rather than preventing it. Mm. But it can also be quite reassuring, I think, to people to know that something they've experienced is common enough to have a name so it's kind of a it's a complicated situation but yeah I just think it's um it's unfortunate and you know the thing the other thing with dating apps as well is that the information you're making your decisions about these people on is often very superficial information you know you're making judgments on mainly someone's photo photos probably but also their height their political beliefs and a shower thought they once had and all of this nonsense um it's very hard to actually make good decisions about people that you should be with based on that and also it relies on you to know exactly what you're looking for in someone and we know that very often the best couples or you know just successful couples are people who never thought they'd end up together And dating apps completely remove the possibility of you ending up with someone you never thought you'd be with unless you're consciously using them that way, which most people aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose the other thing is, is it kind of makes a relationship a a prize to be won and a a kind Mm -hmm. of a sort of side effect of that is that is the couple goals phenomenon, which I, I was really fascinated by because... I post sort of selfies of when we're on holiday or whatever, but actually I know my boyfriend finds it really annoying. <laughs> often says to me, please stop using my life as content. Um, and you you interview um, on the podcast Oliver Proudlock and Emma Louise Connolly, who post a lot of kind of coupley sort of pictures and their relationship is very much content. 
and I, I'm struggling to see the benefits of doing that. And I, I just love to hear from you what, you know, the case they made for it. So my opinion of it really changed actually after I met them, because, you know, if you look at their Instagram feeds, their, their relationship is, is part of their job in a way, you know, it's part of their mutual brand. They, they have a, an Instagram account for their home in London they have a hashtag for all of their content together and you know they do campaigns together and all that and there are loads of other couples who do that on social media um and on YouTube and I was really expecting for them to come in and obviously you see a relationship that's so picture perfect you don't expect it to be like that in real life how could it be but when they came in and they spoke to me my god they were the loveliest people I've ever met (laughs) And they were so sweet and they were so sweet with each other as well. You know, they were like taking photos of each other in the studio. And again, this could all be for show for me, but I I just don't feel like you can fake that. They were holding hands under the table the entire time we recorded. And then as soon as we finished recording, you know, they had a kiss and, and he was like, well, well done, babe. That was really good. And I just, my heart just melted. And I just thought, wow, you know, these these people actually are as in love as they seem on Instagram. But I just, it just really changed my opinion of it. But I think there are obviously more complex situations. And I think what does happen with a lot of people for whom maybe, you know, posting pictures of your relationship is not your job, is that posting photos of your partner can sort of be a way of either masking over the cracks in your relationship and kind of trying to show the world that how happy you are when when maybe you're feeling a bit insecure about the relationship um and I think that can be a problem I think also if one person is posting a lot about the relationship and the other one isn't it can also create insecurities because then the other person will be like why haven't you posted me on your Instagram yet and then there's the whole debate about oh well you posted me on the stories but not on your grid and it sounds so silly but these things matter because there's something about you know the stories are transient it's 24 hours whereas putting someone on your grid is more of a kind of permanent space in your social media profile and you know when people when celebrities do that it's a new story you know (laughs) when celebrities post a photo of their new partner on their grid it's like they've become Instagram official so so it is a thing it's just it's a shame it's a thing um but yeah it's it's very complicated the social media relationship thing and I've been a victim of that myself you know when my boyfriend hadn't posted a photo of me eight months into our relationship I got really annoyed at him And then I realized I actually hadn't posted anything about him, but because he had posted pictures of his exes, I I was like, well, it must mean something if he hasn't posted any pictures of me. So yeah, it's it's funny. (laughs) I mean, what do you do at the end? What's the etiquette? As someone, so I I slightly missed this in that I met my partner about 13 years ago. And so it was before Instagram. And I, I'm. What do you do afterwards um, with the photos of of partners on Instagram? I used to delete them from Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I um, I used to think that deleting them was kind of pointless because you can't delete your past, and that person still exists. And you know, to remove them just seems a bit petty. But actually, I've spoken to a few people on the show who have said that they found it really cathartic to delete those photos, particularly I think if the relationship has ended in a very toxic way or that partner has, you know, really done some damage to that other person, psychologically speaking, or to their mental health, in which case 
it, it can be quite necessary for you. And, you know, obviously you're not deleting the past, but you, it can just help to not have them on your profile anymore. Because I think sometimes the idea of someone coming to your Instagram profile or whatever social media platform it is and seeing pictures of that toxic person might be quite unsettling and might make you feel quite uncomfortable. So it might just be easier to delete them. And again, you know, celebrities do this all the time to the point where it's a news story when <laughs> when it happens, which again, I God, I feel sorry for the people that have to do that job, have to trawl through people's Instagram profiles to see if they've deleted photos of their ex. I focused a lot on our, in our conversation on on the kind of online element, but the, there's that you know there are a lot of other things you explore in the in the book, from kind of the impact of of porn and uh, sort of the way it's changed what we expect of women's bodies, to contraception um, and the various inconveniences and problems women have to go through for contraceptive purposes that men don't experience. One one final thing I'd like to ask you about is um, the way Me Too is explored, um, which is really interesting. The thing that I think many people relate to is is when you describe your initial reaction to Me Too versus how you thought about it after a conversation with friends, you, you initially assumed that, you know, lucky you, none of this stuff had ever happened to you, but then you changed your opinion. Can you just tell me about that? Yeah, so this this is something that I think a lot of women feel um, from my conversations that I've had with listeners of the show and um, people who've responded to pieces I've written about this. Look, I think Me Too was obviously such a brilliant, long-awaited thing. But I think, unfortunately, what happened was that, you know, we were seeing these stories in the media that were quite sensationalized. And they were these huge kind of dramatic stories about Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and these very famous men, these very powerful men um, doing these horrific, horrific crimes. And, you know, that is absolutely awful. But I think what ended up happening is that women who had gone through sexual assault you know, it's when you go through that, it doesn't feel like a dramatic thing. And unfortunately, what tends to happen, you know, women don't scream, they don't kick and scream, they don't run and call the police. It's a deeply traumatizing thing. And that trauma can take quite a few years to come to the surface. And that's not to take away anything from the Harvey Weinstein victims, for obviously, that was very much the case. I'm talking about the way Me Too was represented in the media. And, you know, I saw all of these stories. And I didn't see myself in any of them. I didn't recognize my stories in these women's stories that I read about. Um, Because, you know, I wasn't talking to the women myself. I was just seeing these kind of sensational headlines everywhere as everyone else was. So it was only a few years later when I kind of sat down at dinner with a few friends of mine that we started talking about this. And all of these stories kind of suddenly came out. And it was through these conversations when I realized, oh, actually, I have been sexually assaulted. And actually, I have been molested and these horrible things have happened to me, but I didn't feel at the time like I had a right to put my hands up and say me too, because I just thought, oh, well, well, it's, it wasn't that big a deal in comparison to what other people have gone through. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad, you know, and I, unfortunately, I think a lot of women do that and they tell themselves that what happened to them wasn't that bad. It wasn't that dramatic and therefore their experience doesn't count and I think that is something that we need to keep examining and keep talking about because, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't talk about sexual violence as a spectrum, you know, regardless of what's happened to you. 
you should be you should allow yourself to feel violated if if something has happened to you like that um and you know just from having had so many conversations with my friends I can't think of one woman who hasn't had some sort of sexual assault or sexual harassment uh, against them it's 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 so common it's just that we're conditioned to internalize it and not to not to put up a fuss you know it's very true I, that really resonated with me it's in, I think it applies to so many elements of life as well I mean there's there, there was me too but of course that there was a huge amount to talk about sort of street harassment and uh, sexual violence in in the um wake of the Sarah Everard mm. case and, and I think again that had a lot of people re-examining situations in which they felt they felt threatened Olivia I'm so grateful for your time and I'm aware I've taken up quite a lot of it but before I let you go I, I'd like to ask you what you're doing next I mean if that's not too much pressure you've just had this book out and I really enjoyed it and I really recommend people give it a read and it's it sort of it's so interesting in so many ways um but but do you have any plans for what you'd like to do next aside from hopefully doing lots of podcast interviews and talks about the book? <laughs> oh thank you so much um I guess in terms of what I want to do next you know I still I'm still a uh journalist at the independent and I, and I really love my job and I love being able to do these features and talking to other women and kind of raising awareness for things I care about. Um, I think that's such a privilege that I have. I, in terms of writing uh, books, I'd really like to write fiction and I've started a few little things and I have, I have a few ideas, but yeah, I think the thing with writing nonfiction is that you're very cautious of what you're writing, obviously, and you know it requires a lot of research and when you're writing about real people you have to be very careful about what you say I think fiction can be very liberating (laughs) because you don't have to worry about that in the same way and you can write about truthful experiences in a way that you know can be just completely how you remembered it it doesn't you don't have to ask other people how they remembered it you can just you have the freedom to write about these things in however way you want to and I think very often actually in fiction you can make such powerful points about the things that you care about um because you can really allow the reader to empathize with your characters and that can that can be very powerful so yeah I'd like to write fiction um we'll see (laughs) (laughs) you'll have to come back on and talk about the results (laughs) you've committed to it so publicly now we're all expecting a best seller from you next year oh god Um, (laughs) quite a good thing to do um before I completely let you go I've got to ask the final question which I ask everyone which is if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be um I guess just to have more confidence in myself because even now I just find myself completely bogged down by imposter syndrome. And, you know, I've been a journalist for a while, so I feel fairly confident in that field. But in terms of the literary world, when I meet other authors and when I meet people in publishing, I feel so out of my depth. And I kind of find myself resorting to this like, oh, this silly book and oh, silly, silly author me. I'm I'm not an author. I'm not a part of it. And, you know, I did behave very much like that when I entered journalism. And I just think I would tell myself, you know, be be confident in your abilities and don't let other people make you feel like you don't deserve to be there because you do and I think that's something that unfortunately so many women experience in particular yes yes and then uh, it does get better but yeah I completely agree it's one of those things if you could just go back and tell your younger self that 
it would have made a big difference to yeah. a lot of it, a lot of experiences. It's very good advice and it's a great <laughs> note to end on. Olivia, thank you so much. You've been um, such a joy to speak to and to everyone listening millennial love is out now so that's it from me thank you so much for listening to the sunday salon please do share your thoughts about the episode with me i'm on twitter and instagram at alice Zania. and if you're enjoying the podcast please do think about leaving a rating or a review so thank you for listening and until next week goodbye goodbye